Hey guys, I'm back. We are about to dive into chapter 12 and 13 of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Um, when we left off, um, Harry and Ron and Hermione has faced off against a mountain troll. Um, they won. Harry and Ron had to face off against it because it found Hermione in the girls' bathroom by herself. And they actually beat it and... So, then, Harry actually had his first Quidditch match against Slytherin, and they won because Harry caught the Golden Snitch, and Gryffindor won. So, that's where we're at, and we're going to get into Chapter 12 right now. Chapter 12, The Mirror of Erised. Christmas was coming. One morning in mid-December, Hogwarts woke to find itself covered in several feet of snow. The light froze solid, and the Weasley twins were punished for bewitching several snowballs so that they followed Quirrell around, bouncing off the back of his turban. The few owls that managed to battle their way through the stormy sky to deliver mail had to be nursed back to health by Hagrid before they could fly off again. No one could wait for the holidays to start while the Gryffindor common room and the Great Hall had roaring fires, the drafty corridors had become icy and a bitter wind rattled the windows in the classrooms. Worst of all were Professor Snape's classes down in the dungeons, where their breath rose in a mist before them and they kept as close as possible to their hot cauldrons. I do feel sorry. So sorry, said Draco Malfoy, one potions class, for all those people who have, have to stay at Hogwarts for Christmas because they're not wanted at home. He was looking over at Harry as he spoke. Crab and Goyle chuckled. Harry, who was measuring out powdered spine of lionfish, ignored them. Malfoy had been even more unpleasant than usual since the Quidditch match. Disgusted that the Slytherins had lost, he had tried to get everyone laughing at how a wide-mouthed tree frog would be replacing Harry as Seeker next. Then he realized that nobody found this funny because they were all so impressed at the way Harry had managed to stay on his broomstick, bucking. So Malfoy, jealous and angry, had gone back to taunting Harry about having no proper family. It was true that Harry wasn't going back to private drive for Christmas. Professor McGonagall had come around the week before making a lift to students who would be staying for the holidays, and Harry had signed up at once. He didn't feel sorry for himself at all. This would probably be the best Christmas he'd ever had. Ron and his brothers were staying too because Mr. and Miss Weasley were going to Romania to visit Charlie. When they left the dungeons at the end of potions, they found a large fir tree blocking the corridor ahead. Two enormous feet sticking out at the bottom and a loud puffing sound told them that Hagrid was behind it. Hi, Hagrid. Want any help? Ron asked sticking his head through the branches. Nah, I'm all right. Thanks, Ron. Would you mind moving out of the way? Came Malfoy's cold drawl from behind them. Are you trying to earn some extra money, Weasley? Hoping to be gamekeeper yourself when you leave Hogwarts, I suppose? That hut of Hagrid's must seem like a palace compared to what your family's used to. Ron dived at Malfoy just as Snape came up the stairs. Weasley! Ron let go of the front of Malfoy's robes. He was provoked, Professor Snape, said Hagrid, sticking his huge hairy face out from behind the tree. Malfoy was insulting his family. Be that as it may, fighting is against Hogwarts rules, Hagrid, said Snape silkily. Five points from Gryffindor, Weasley, and be grateful it isn't more. Move along, all of you. Malfoy, Crab, and Goyle pushed roughly past the trees, scattering needles everywhere and smirking. I'll get them, said Ron, grinding his teeth at Malfoy's back. One of these days, I'll get him. I hate them both, said Harry, Malfoy, and Snape. Come on, cheer up. It's nearly Christmas, said Hagrid. Tell you what, come with me and see the Great Hall looks a treat. So the three of them followed Hagrid and his tree off to the Great Hall, where Professor McGonagall and Pre Professor Flitwork were busy with the Christmas decorations. Ah, oh, Hagrid, the last tree. Put it in the far corner, would you? The hall looked spectacular. 
Festoons of holly and mistletoe hung all around the walls, and no less than twelve towering Christmas trees stood around the room, some sparkling with tiny icicles, some glittering with hundreds of candles. How many days you got left until your holidays? Hagrid asked. Just one, said Hermione. And that reminds me. Harry, Ron, we've got half an hour before lunch. We should be in the library. Oh yeah, you're right, said Ron, tearing his eyes away from Professor Flitwick, who had golden bubbles blossoming out of his wand and was trailing them over the branches of the new tree. The library, said Hagrid, following them out of the hall. Just before the holidays? Bidkit, aren't you? Oh, we're not working. Harry told him brightly. Ever since you mentioned Nicholas Flamel, we've been trying to find out who he is. You what? Hagrid looked shocked. Listen here. I've told you, drop it. It's nothing to you. What the dog's garden? We just want to know who Nicholas Flamel is, that's all, said Hermione. Unless you'd like to tell us and save us the trouble, Harry added. We must have been through hundreds of books already and we can't find him anywhere. Just give us a hint. I know I've read his name somewhere. I'm saying nothing, said Hagrid flatly. Just had to find out for ourselves then, said Ron. And they left Hagrid looking disgruntled and hurried off to the library. They had indeed been searching books for Flamel's name ever since Hagrid had let it slip because how else were they going to find out what Snape was trying to steal? The trouble was, it was very hard to know where to begin, not knowing what Flamel might have done to get himself into a book. He wasn't in Great Wizards of the 20th Century, or notable magical names of our time. He was missing, too, from important modern magical discoveries and a study of recent developments in wizardry. And then, of course, there was the sheer size of the library, tens of thousands of books, thousands of shelves, hundreds of narrow rows. Hermione took out a list of subjects and titles she had decided to search while Ron strode off down a row of books and started pulling them off the shelves at random. Harry wandered over to the restricted section. He had been wondering for a while if Flamel wasn't somewhere in there. Unfortunately, you needed a specially signed note from one of the teachers to look in any of the restricted books, and they knew he'd never get one. These were the books containing powerful dark magic never taught at Hogwarts, and only read by older students studying advanced defense against the dark arts. What are you looking for, boy? Nothing, said Harry. Madame Pence, the librarian, brandished a feather duster at him. You'd better get out of here, then. Go on. Out. Wishing he'd been a bit quicker at thinking up some story, Harry left the library. He, Ron, and Hermione had already agreed They'd better not ask Madame Pence where they could find Flamel. They were sure she'd be able to tell them, but they couldn't risk Snape hearing what they were up to. Harry waited outside in the corridor to see if the other two had found anything, but he wasn't very hopeful. They had been looking for two weeks. After all, but as they only had odd moments between lessons, it wasn't surprising they'd found nothing. What they really needed was a nice long search without Madame Pence breathing down their necks. Five minutes later, Ron and Hermione joined him, shaking their heads. They went off to lunch. You will keep looking while I'm away, won't you? said Hermione. And send me an owl if you find anything? And you could ask your parents if they know who Flamel is, said Ron. It'd be safe to ask them. Very safe, as they're both dentists, said Hermione. Once the holidays had started, Ron and Harry were having too good a time to think much about Flamel. They had the dormitory to themselves, and the common room was far emptier than usual, so they were able to get the good armchairs by the fire. They sat by the hour, eating anything they could, sparing on a toast a fork, bread, English muffins, marshmallows, and plotting ways of getting Malfoy expelled, which were fun to talk about, even if they wouldn't work. Ron also started teaching Harry Wizard chess. This was exactly like muggle chess, except for the fig figures were alive, which made it a lot little like directing troops in battle. Ron's set was very old and battered, like everything else he owned. It had once belonged to someone else in his family, in this case, his grandfather. However old, chessmen weren't a drawback at all. Ron knew them so well he never had trouble getting them to do what he wanted. 
Harry played with chessmen Seamus Finnegan had lent him, and they didn't trust him at all. He wasn't a very good player yet, and they kept shouting different bits of advice at him, which was confusing. Don't send me there. Can't you see us, Knight? Send him. We can afford to lose him. On Christmas Eve, Harry went to bed looking forward to the next day for the food and the fun, but not expecting any presents at all. When he woke early in the morning, however, the first thing he saw was a small package, pile of packages at the foot of his bed. Merry Christmas, said Ron sleepily at Harry, scrambling out of bed and pulling up his bathrobe. You too, said Harry. Will you look at this? I've got some presents. What did you expect? Turnips, said Ron, turning on his own pile, which is a lot bigger than Harry's. Harry picked up the top parcel. It was wrapped in thick brown paper and scrawled across it was To Harry from Hagrid. Inside was a roughly cut wooden flute. Hagrid had obviously whittled it himself. Harry blew it. It sounded a bit like an owl. A second, very small parcel contained a note. We received your message and enclosed your Christmas present from Uncle Vernon and Aunt Petunia. Taped to the note was a 50 pence piece. That's friendly, said Harry. Ron was fascinated by the 50 pence. Weird, he said. What a shape. This is money. You can keep it, said Harry, laughing at how pleased Ron was. Haggard and my aunt and uncle, so who sent this? I think I know who that one's from, said Ron, turning a bit pink and pointing to a very lump of parcel. My mom, I told her you didn't expect any presents, and... Oh, no, he groaned. She's made you a Weasley sweater. Harry had to- torn open the parcel to find a thick, hand-knitted sweater in emerald green and a large box of homemade fudge. Every year she makes a sweater, said Ron, unwrapping his own, and mine's always maroon. That's really nice of her, said Harry, trying the fudge, which was very tasty. His next present also contained candy, a large box of chocolate from frogs from Hermione. This only left one parcel. Harry picked it up and felt it. It was very light. He unwrapped it. Something fluid and silvery gray went slithering through the floor where it lay in gleaming folds. Ron gasped. I've heard of those, he said in a hushed voice, dropping the box of every flavored beans he'd gotten from Hermione. If that's what I think it is, they're really rare and really valuable. What is it? Harry picked the shining silvery cloth off the floor. It was strange to the touch, like water woven into material. It's an invisibility cloak, said Ron, a look of awe on his face. I'm sure it is. Try it on. Harry threw the cloak around his shoulders, and Ron gave a yell. It is! Look down! Harry looked down at his feet, but they were gone. He dashed to the mirror. Sure enough, his reflection looked back at him, just his head suspended in midair, his body completely invisible. He pulled the cloak over his head, and his reflection vanished completely. There's a note, said Ron suddenly. A note fell out of it. Harry pulled off the cloak and seized the letter. Written in narrow, loopy writing, he had never seen before were the following words. Your father left this in my possession before he died. It is time it was returned to you. Use it well. A very Merry Christmas to you. There was no signature. Harry stared at the note. Ron was admiring the cloak. I'd give anything for one of these, he said. Anything. What's the matter? Nothing, said Harry. He felt very strange. Who had sent the cloak? Had it really once belonged to his father? Before he could say or think anything else, the dormitory door was flung open and Fred and George Weasley bounded in. Harry stuffed the cloak quickly out of sight. He didn't feel like sharing it with anyone else yet. Merry Christmas! Hey, look! Harry's got a Weasley sweater, too! Fred and George were wearing blue sweaters, one with a large yellow F on it, the other a G. Harry is better than ours, though, said Fred, holding up Harry's sweater. She obviously makes more of an effort if you're not family. Why aren't you wearing yours, Ron? George demanded. Come on, get it on. They're lovely and warm. I hate maroon, Ron moaned half-heartedly as he pulled it over his head. You haven't got a letter on yours, George observed. I suppose she thinks you don't forget your name, but we're not stupid. We know we're called George and Fred. What's all this noise? Percy Weasley stuck his head through the door, looking disapproving. He had clearly gotten halfway through the 
unwrapping his presents as he, too, carried a lumpy sweater over his arm, which Fred seized. P for perfect, or prefect. Get it on, Percy. Come on, we're all wearing ours. Even Harry got one. I don't want, said Percy thickly as the twins forced the sweater over his head, knocking his glasses askew. And you're not sitting with the prefects today either, said George. Christmas is the time for family. They frog-marched Percy from the room, his arms pinned to his side by a sweater. Harry had never in all his life had such a Christmas dinner. A hundred fat roast turkeys, mountains of roast and boiled potatoes, platters of chipotles, turins of buttered peas, silver boats of thick, rich gravy and cranberry sauce, and stacks of wizard crackers every few feet along the table. These fantastic party favors were nothing like the feeble muggle ones the Dursleys usually bought with their little plastic toys and their flimsy paper hats inside. Harry pulled a wizard cracker from with Fred, and it didn't just bang. It went off with a blast like a cannon and engulfed them all in a cloud of blue smoke, while from the inside exploded a rare, a rare admiral's hat and several live white mice. Up at the high table, Dumbledore had swapped his pointed wizard's hat for a flowered bonnet and was chuckling merrily at a joke Professor Flitwick had just read him. Flaming Christmas puddings followed the turkey. Percy nearly broke his teeth on a silver sickle embedded in his slice. Harry watched Hagrid, getting redder and redder in the face as he called for more wine. Finally, kissing Professor McGonagall on the cheek, who, to Harry's amazement, giggled and blushed, her top hat lopsided. When Harry finally left the table, he was laden down with a stack of things out of the crackers, including a pack of non-exploding luminous balloons, a grow-your-own-warts kit, and his own new wizard chest set. The white mice had disappeared, and Harry had a nasty feeling they were going to end up as Miss Norris's Christmas dinner. Harry and the Weasleys spent a happy afternoon having a furious snowball fight on the grounds. Then, cold, wet, and gasping for breath, they returned to the fire in the Gryffindor common room, where Harry broke in his new chess set by losing spectacularly to Ron. He suspected he wouldn't have lost so badly if Percy hadn't tried to help him so much. After a meal of turkey sandwiches, crumpets, truffles, and Christmas cake, everyone felt too full and sleepy to do much before bed except sit and watch Percy chase Fred and George all over Gryffindor Tower because they'd stolen his perfect badge. It had been Harry's best Christmas day ever, yet something had been nagging at the back of his mind all day. Not until he climbed into bed was he free to think about it. The invisibility cloak and whoever had sent it. Ron, full of turkey and cake and with nothing mysterious to bother him, fell asleep almost as soon as he'd drawn the curtains of his four-poster. Harry leaned over the side of his own bed and pulled the cloak out from under it. His father's? This had been his father's? He let the material flow over his hands, smoother than silk, light as air. Use it well, the note had said. He had to try it now. He slipped out of bed and wrapped the cloak around himself. Looking down at his legs, he saw only moonlight and shadows. It was a very funny feeling. Use it well. Suddenly, Harry felt wide awake. The whole of Hogwarts was open to him in this cloak. Excitement flooded through him as he stood there in the dark and silence. He could go anywhere in this, anywhere, and Filch would never know. Ron grunted in his sleep. Should Harry wake him? Something held him back. His father's cloak. He felt that this time, the first time, he wanted to use it alone. He crept out of the dormitory, down the stairs, across the common room, and climbed through the portrait hole. Who's there? squawked the fat lady. Harry said nothing. He walked quickly down the corridor. Where should he go? He stopped, his heart racing and thought. And then it came to him, the restricted section in the library. He'd be able to read as long as he liked, as long as it took to find out who Flamel was. He set off, drawing the invisibility cloak tighter around him, as he walked. The library was pitch black and very eerie. Harry lit a lamp to see his way along the rows of books. The lamp looked as if it was floating along in midair, and even though Harry could feel his arm supporting it, the sight gave him the creeps. 
The restricted section was right at the back of the library. Stepping carefully over the rope that separated these books from the rest of the library, he held up his lamp to read the titles. They didn't tell him much. Their peeling faded gold letters spelled words and languages Harry couldn't understand. Some had no title at all. One book had a dark stain on it that looked horribly like blood. The hairs on the back of Harry's neck prickled. Maybe he was imagining it, maybe not, but he thought a faint whispering was coming from the books, as though they knew someone was there who shouldn't be. He had to start somewhere. Setting the lamp down carefully on the floor, he looked along the bottom shelf for an interesting-looking book. A large black and silver volume caught his eye. He pulled it out with difficulty, because it was very heavy, and, balancing it on his knee, let it fall open. A piercing, blood-curdling shriek split the silence. The book was screaming. Harry snapped it shut, but the shriek went on and on, one high, unbroken, ear-splitting note. He stumbled backward and knocked over his lamp, which went out at once. Panicking, he heard footsteps coming down the corridor outside. Stuffing the shrieking book back on the shelf, he ran for it. He passed Filch in the doorway. Filch's pale, wild eyes looked straight through him, and Harry slipped under Filch's outstretched arm and streaked off up the corridor, the book shriek still ringing in his ears. He came to a sudden halt in front of a tall suit of armor. He had been so busy getting away from the library, he hadn't paid attention to where he was going. Perhaps because it was dark, he didn't recognize where he was at all. There was a suit of armor near the kitchens, he knew, but he must be five floors above there. You asked me to come directly to you, Professor, if any was wandering around at night, and somebody's been in the library. Restricted section. Harry felt the blood draining out of his face. Wherever he was, Filch must have known a shortcut because his soft, greasy voice was getting nearer, and to his horror, it was Snape who replied. The restricted section? Well, they can't be far. We'll catch them. Harry stood rooted to the spot as Filch and Snape came around the corner ahead. They couldn't see him, of course, but it was a narrow corridor, and they came much nearer than they knocked right into him. The cloak didn't stop him from being solid. He backed away as quietly as he could. A door stood ajar to his left. It was his only hope. He squeezed through it, holding his breath, trying not to move it, and to his relief, he managed to get inside the room without their noticing anything. They walked straight past, and Harry leaned against the wall, breathing deeply, listening to their footsteps dying away. That had been close. Very close. It was a few more seconds before he noticed anything about the room he had hidden in. It looked like an unused classroom. The dark shapes of desks and chairs were piled against the walls, and there was an upturned waste paper basket. But propped against the wall, facing him, was something that didn't look as if it belonged there. Something that looked as if someone had just put it there to keep it out of the way. It was a magnificent mirror, as high as the ceiling, with an ornate gold frame standing on two clawed feet. There was an inscription carved around the top. Irisid Stra, Iru Oit Ubi Kafru Oyat On Wosi. His panic fading now that there was no sound of Filch and Snape. Harry moved nearer to the mirror, wanting to look at himself but see no reflection again. He stepped in front of it. He had to clap his hands to his mouth to stop himself from screaming. He whirled around. His heart was pounding far more furiously than when the book had screamed, for he had seen not only himself in the mirror, but a whole crowd of people standing right behind him. But the room was empty. Breathing very fast, he turned slowly back to the mirror. There he was, reflected in it, white and scared-looking, and there, reflected behind him, were at least ten others. Harry looked over his shoulder, and still no one was there. Or were they all invisible, too? Was he, in fact, in a room full of invisible people, and their mirror's trick was that it reflected them, invisible or not? He looked in the mirror again. A woman standing right behind his reflection was smiling at him and waving. He reached out a hand and felt the air behind him. If she was really there, he'd touch her. Their reflections were so close together. But he felt only air. She and the others existed only in the mirror. 
She was a very pretty woman. She had dark red hair and her eyes. Her eyes are just like mine, Harry thought, edging a little closer to the glass. Bright green. Exactly the same shape. But then he noticed that she was crying, smiling, but crying at the same time. The tall, thin, black-haired man standing next to her put his arm around her. He wore glasses, and his hair was very untidy. It stuck up at the back just as Harry's did. Harry was so close to the mirror now that his nose was nearly touching that of his reflection. Mom? he whispered. Dad? They just looked at him, smiling, and slowly Harry looked into the faces of the other people in the mirror and saw other pairs of green eyes like his, other noses like his, even a little old man who looked as though he had Harry's noble knees. Harry was looking at his family for the first time in his life. The Potters smiled and waved at Harry, and he stared hungrily back at them. His hands pressed flat against the glass as though he was hoping to fall right through it and reach them. He had a powerful kind of ache inside him, half joy, half terrible sadness. How long he stood there, he didn't know. The reflections did not fade, and he looked and looked until a distant noise brought him back to his senses. He couldn't stay here. He had to find his way back to bed. He tore his eyes away from his mother's face, whispered, I'll come back, and hurried from the room. You could have woken me up, said Ron crossly. You can come tonight. I'm going back. I want to show you the mirror. I'd like to see your mom and dad, Ron said eagerly. And I want to see all your family, all the Weasleys. You'll be able to show me your other brothers and everyone. You can see them any old time, said Ron. Just come around my house this summer. Anyway, maybe it only shows dead people. Shame about not finding Clamel, though. Have some bacon or something. Why aren't you eating anything? Harry couldn't eat. He had seen his parents and would be seeing them again tonight. He had almost forgotten about Flamel. It didn't seem very important anymore. Who cared what the three-headed dog was guarding? What did it matter if Snape stole it, really? Are you all right, said Ron? You look odd. What Harry feared most was that he might not be able to find the mirror again. With Ron covered in the cloak, too, they had walked much more slowly the next night. They tried retracing Harry's route from the library, wandering around the dock passageways for nearly an hour. I'm freezing, said Ron. Let's forget it and go back. No, Harry hissed. I know it's here, somewhere. They passed the ghost of a tall witch gliding in the opposite direction, but saw no one else. Just as Ron started moaning that his feet were dead with cold, Harry spotted the suit of armor. It's here, just here, yes. They pushed the door open, Harry dropped the cloak from around his shoulders and ran to the mirror. There they were. His mother and father beamed at the sight of him. See? Harry whispered. I can't see anything. Look. Look at them all. There are loads of them. I, I can only see you. Look at it properly. Go on. Stand where I am. Harry stepped aside. But with Ron in front of the mirror, he couldn't see his family anymore. Just Ron in his paisley jam pajamas. Ron, though, was staring transfixed at his image. Look at me, he said. Can you see all your family standing around you? No, I'm alone. But I'm different. I look older. And I'm head boy. What? I am. I'm wearing the badge like Bill used to. And I'm holding the house cup and the Quidditch cup. I'm Quidditch captain, too. Ron tore his eyes away from the splendid sight to look excitedly at Harry. Do you think this Mary shows the future? How can it? All my family are dead. Let me have another look. You had it to yourself all last night. Give me a bit more time. You're only holding the Quidditch cup. What's interesting about that? I want to see my parents. Don't push me. A sudden noise outside in the corridor put an end to their discussion. They hadn't realized how loudly they had been talking. Quick. Ron threw the cloak back over them as the luminous eyes of Miss Norris came around the door. Ron and Harry stood quiet still, both thinking the same thing. Did the cloak work on cats? After what seemed an age, she turned and left. This isn't safe. She might have gone for filch. I bet she heard us. Come on. And Ron pulled Harry out of the room. The snow still hadn't melted the next morning. Want to play some chess, Harry? said Ron. No. 
Why don't we go down and visit Hagrid? No, you go. I know what you're thinking about, Harry. That mirror. Don't go back tonight. Why not? I don't know. I've just got a bad feeling about it. And anyway, you've had too many close shaves already. Filch, Snave, and Miss Norris are wandering around. So what if they can't see you? What if they walk into you? What if you knock something over? You sound like Hermione. I'm serious, Harry. Don't go. But Harry only had one thought in his head, which was to get back in front of the mirror, and Ron wasn't going to stop him. That third night, he found his way more quickly than before. He was walking so fast he knew he was making more noise than was wise, but he didn't meet anyone. And there were his mother and father smiling at him again, and one of his grandfathers nodding happily. Harry sank down to sit on the floor in front of the mirror. There was nothing to stop him from staying here all night with his family. Nothing at all. Except. So, back again, Harry. Harry felt as though his insides had turned to ice. He looked behind him. Sitting on one of the desks by the wall was none other than Albus Dumbledore. Harry must have been walking straight past him. So desperate to get to the mirror, he hadn't noticed him. I, I didn't see you, sir. Strange how nearsighted being invisible can make you, said Dumbledore. And Harry was relieved to see that he was smiling. So, said Dumbledore, slipping off the desk to sit on the floor with Harry. You, like hundreds before you, have discovered the delights of the mirror of Irisid. I didn't know it was called that, sir. But I expect you've realized by now what it does. It, well, it shows me my family. And it showed you your friend, Ron, himself as head boy. How did you know? I don't need a cloak to become invisible, said Dumbledore gently. Now, can you think what the mirror of Irised shows us all? Harry shook his head. Let me explain. The happiest man on earth would be able to use this mirror of Irised like a normal mirror. That is, he would look into it and see himself exactly as he is. Does that help? Harry thought, then he said slowly, It shows us what we want. Whatever we want. Yes and no, said Dumbledore quietly. It shows us nothing more or less than the deepest, most desperate desire of our hearts. You, who have never known your family, see them standing around you. Ronald Weasley, who has always been overshadowed by his brothers, sees himself standing alone, the best of them all. However, this mirror will give us neither knowledge or truth. Men have wasted away before it, entranced by what they have seen, or been driven mad not knowing if what it shows is real or even possible. The mirror will be moved to a new home tomorrow, Harry, and I ask you not to go looking for it again. If you ever do run across it, you will now be prepared. It does not do to dwell on dreams and forget to live. Remember that. Now why don't you put that admirable cloak back on and get off to bed? Harry stood up. Sir, Professor Dumbledore, can I ask you something? Obviously, you've just done so, Dumbledore smiled. You may ask me one more thing, however. What do you see when you look in the mirror? I, I see myself holding a pair of thick woolen socks, Harry stared. One can never have enough socks, said Dumbledore. Another Christmas has come and gone, and I didn't get a single pair. People will insist on giving me books. It was only when he was back in bed that it struck Harry that Dumbledore might not have been quite truthful. But then, he thought, as he shoved scabbers off his pillows, it had been quite a personal question. Chapter 13 Nicholas Flamel. Dumbledore had convinced Harry not to go looking for the mirror of Irised again, and for the rest of Christmas holidays, the invisibility cloak stayed folded at the bottom of his trunk. Harry wished he had, could forget what he'd been seen in the mirror as easily, but he couldn't. He started having nightmares over and over again. He dreamed about his parents disappearing in a flash of green light while a high voice cackled with laughter. You see, Dumbledore was right. That mirror could drive you mad, said Ron, when Harry told him about these dreams. 
Hermione, who came back the day before term started, took a different view of things. She was torn between horror at the idea of Harry being out of bed, roaming the school three nights in a row, if Filch had caught you, and disappointed that he hadn't at least found out who Nicholas Vimell was. They had almost given up hope of ever finding Flamel in a library book, even though Harry was still sure he'd read the name somewhere. Once term had started, they were back to skimming through books. For ten minutes during their breaks, Harry had even less time than the other two because Quidditch practice had started again. Wood was working the team harder than ever. Even the endless rain that had replaced the snow couldn't dampen his spirits. The Weasleys complained that Wood was becoming a fanatic. But Harry was on Wood's side. They won their next match against Hufflepuff. They would overtake Slytherin in the house championship for the first time in seven years. Quite apart from wanting to win, Harry found that he had fewer nightmares when he was tired out after training. Then, during one particular wet and muddy practice session, Wood gave the team a bit of bad news. He'd just gotten very angry with the Weasleys, who kept dive-bombing each other and pretending to fall off their brooms. "'Will you stop messing around?' he yelled. "'That's exactly the sort of thing that'll lose us the match!' "'Snape's refereeing this time, and he'll be looking for any excuse to knock points off Gryffindor.' George Weasley really did fall off his broom at these words. "'Snape's refereeing?' he spluttered through a mouthful of mud. "'When he's ever refereed a Quidditch match.' He's not going to be fair if we might overtake Slytherin. The rest of the team landed next to George to complain, too. It's not my fault, said Wood. We've just got to make sure we play a clean game. So Snape hasn't got any excuse to pick on us. Which was all very well, thought Harry, but he had another reason for not wanting Snape near him while he was playing Quidditch. The rest of the team hung back to talk to one another, as usual at the end of practice, but Harry headed straight back to Gryffindor common room, where he found Ron and Hermione playing chess. Chess was the only thing Hermione ever lost at, something Harry and Ron thought was very good for her. Don't talk to me for a moment, said Ron when Harry sat down next to him. I need to con... con oh. He caught sight of Harry's face. What's the matter with you? You look terrible. Speaking quietly so that no one else would hear, Harry told the other two about Snape's sudden sinister desire to be a Quidditch referee. Don't play, said Hermione at once. Say your ear, said Ron. Pretend to break your leg, Hermione suggested. Really, break your leg, said Ron. I can't, said Harry. There isn't a reserve seeker. If I back out, Gryffindor can't play at all. At that moment, Neville toppled into the common room. How he had managed to climb through the portrait hole was anyone's guess because his legs had been stuck together with what they recognized as once as the leg locker curse. He must have had to bunny hop all the way up to Gryffindor Tower. Everyone fell over laughing except Hermione, who leapt up and performed the counter curse. Neville's legs sprang apart and he got to his feet trembling. What happened? Hermione asked him leading him over to sit with Harry and Ron. Malfoy, said Neville, shaken. I met him outside the library. He said he'd been looking for someone to practice that on. Go to Professor McGonagall, Hermione urged Neville. Report him. Neville shook his head. I don't want more trouble, he mumbled. You've got to stand up to him, Neville, said Ron. He's used to walking all over people, but that's no reason to lie down in front of him and make it easier. There's no need to tell me I'm not brave enough to be in Gryffindor. Malfoy's already done that, Neville choked out. Harry felt in the pocket of his robes and pulled out a chocolate frog, the very last one from the box Hermione had given him for Christmas. He gave it to Neville, who looked as though he might cry. You're worth twelve of Malfoy, Harry said. The sorting hat chose you for Gryffindor, didn't it? And where's Malfoy? And stinking Slytherin. Neville's lips twitched in a weak smile as he unwrapped the frog. <laughs> Thanks, Harry. I think I'll go to bed. Do you want to read the card? You collect them, don't you? As Neville walked away, Harry looked at the famous wizard card. Dumbledore again, he said. He was the first one I ever... He gasped. He stared at the back of the card. Then he looked up at Ron and Hermione. 
I found him, he whispered. I found Flamel. I told you I read that name somewhere before. I read it on the train coming here. Listen to this. Dumbledore is particularly famous for his defeat of the dark wizard Grindelwald in 1945, for the discovery of the twelve uses of dragon's blood, and his work in Alchemy with his partner, Nicholas Flamel. Hermione jumped to her feet. She hadn't looked so excited since they'd gotten back the marks for their very first piece of homework. Stay there, she said, and she sprinted up the stairs to the girls' dormitories. Harry and Ron barely had time to exchange mystified looks before she was dashing back, an enormous old book in her arms. I never thought to look in here, she whispered excitedly. I got this out of the library weeks ago for a bit of light reading. Light, said Ron. But Hermione told him to be quiet until she'd looked something up and started flicking frantically through the pages, muttering to herself. At last, she found what she was looking for. I knew it! I knew it! Are we allowed to speak yet? said Ron grumpily. Hermione ignored him. Nicholas Flamel, she whispered dramatically, is the only known maker of the Sorcerer's Stone. This didn't have quite the effect she'd expected. The what? said Harry and Ron. Oh, honestly, don't you two read? Look, read that. There. She pushed a book back toward them and Harry and Ron read. The ancient study of alchemy is concerned with making the Sorcerer's Stone a legendary substance with astonishing powers. The stone will transform any metal into pure gold. It also produces the elixir of life, which will make the drinker immortal. There have been many reports of the sorcerer's stone over their centuries, but the only stone currently in existence belongs to Mr. Nicholas Flamel, the noted alchemist and opera lover. Mr. Flamel, who celebrated his 665th birthday last year, enjoys a quiet life in Devon with his wife, Prinelli, 658. See, said Hermione when Harry and Ron had finished, the dog must be guarding Flamel's sorcerer's stone. I bet he asked Dumbledore to keep it safe for him because they're friends and he knew someone was after it. That's why he wanted the stone moved out of Gringotts. A stone that makes gold and stops you from ever dying, said Harry. No wonder Snape's after it. Anyone would want it. And no wonder we couldn't find a flamel in the study of recent developments in wizardry, said Ron. He's not exactly recent if he's 665, is he? The next morning, in defense against the dark arts, while copying down different parts of treating werewolf bites, Harry and Ron were still discussing what they'd do with sorcerer stones if they had one. It wasn't until Ron said he'd buy his own Quidditch team that Harry remembered about Snape and the coming match. I'm going to play, he told Ron and Hermione. If I don't, all the Slytherins will think I'm just too scared to face Snape. I'll show them. It'll really wipe the smiles off their faces if we win. Just as long as we're not wiping you off the field, said Hermione. As the match drew nearer, however, Harry became more and more nervous, whatever he told Ron and Hermione. The rest of the team wasn't too calm either. The idea of overtaking Slytherin in the house championship was wonderful. No one had done it for seven years, but would they be allowed to with such a biased referee? Harry didn't know whether he was imagining it or not, but he seemed to keep running into Snape wherever he went. At times, he even wondered whether Snape was following him, trying to catch him on his own. Potions lessons were turning into a sort of weekly torture. Snape was so horrible to Harry. Could Snape possibly know they'd found out about the Sorcerer's Stone? Harry didn't see how he could, yet he sometimes had the horrible feeling that Snape could read minds. Harry knew when they wished him good luck outside the locker rooms the next afternoon that Ron and Hermione were wondering where they'd ever see him alive again. This wasn't what you'd call comforting. Harry hardly heard a word of Wood's pep talk as he pulled on his Quidditch robes and picked up his Nimbus 2000. Ron and Hermione, meanwhile, had found a place in the stands next to Neville, who couldn't understand why they looked so grim and worried, or why they had both brought their wands to the match. Little did Harry know that Ron and Hermione had been secretly practicing the leg locker curse. They'd gotten the idea from Malfoy using it on Neville, and were ready to use it on Snape if he showed any sign of wanting to hurt Harry. Now, don't forget, it's Locomotor Mortis. 
Hermione muttered as she slipped his wand up his sleeve. I know, Ron snapped. Don't nag. Back in the locker room, Wood had taken Harry aside. Don't want to pressure you, Harry. But if we ever need an early capture of the snitch, it's now. Finish the game before Snape can favor Hufflepuff too much. The whole school's out there, said Fred Weasley, peering out of the door. Even Blimey, the Dumbledore's come to watch. Harry, his heart did a somersault. Dumbledore, he said, dashing to the door to make sure. Fred was right. There was no mistaking that silver beard. Harry could have laughed out loud with relief. He was safe. There was simply no way that Snape would dare to try to hurt him if Dumbledore was watching. Perhaps that was why Snape was looking so angry as the teams marched onto the field, something that Ron noticed too. I've never seen Snape look so mean, he told Hermione, looking, look, they're off. Ouch. Someone had poked Ron in the back of the head. It was Malfoy. Oh, sorry, Weasley. Didn't see you there. Malfoy grinned broadly at Graven Goyle. Wonder how long Potter's going to stay on his room this time. Anyone want to bet? What about you, Weasley? Ron didn't answer. Snape had just awarded Hufflepuff a penalty because George Weasley had hit a bludger at him. Hermione, who had all fingers crossed in her lap, was squinting fixedly at Harry, who was circling the game like a hawk, looking for the snitch. You know how I think they chose people from the Gryffindor team, said Malfoy loudly a few minutes later, as Snape awarded Hufflepuff another penalty for no reason at all. It's people they feel sorry for. See, there's Potter, who's got no parents. Then there's Weasley's, who's got no money. You should be on the team, Longbottom. You've got no brains. Neville went bright red but turned his seat to face Malfoy. I'm worth twelve of you, Malfoy, he stammered. Malfoy, Crab, and Goyle howled with laughter, but Ron, still not daring to take his eyes from the game, said, You tell him, Neville. Longbottom, if brains were gold, you'd be poorer than Weasley, and that's saying something. Ron's nerves were already stretched to the breaking point with anxiety about Harry. I'm warning you, Malfoy, one more word. Ron, said Hermione suddenly. Harry, what, where? Harry had suddenly gone into a spectacular dive, which drew grasps and cheers from the crowd. Hermione stood up, her cross fingers in her mouth, as Harry streaked toward the ground like a bullet. You're in luck, Weasley. Potter's obviously spotted some money on the ground, said Malfoy. Ron snapped. Before Malfoy knew what was happening, Ron was on top of him, wrestling him to the ground. Neville hesitated, then clambered over the back of his seat to help. Come on, Harry, Hermione screamed, leaping under her seat to watch as Harry sped straight at Snape. She didn't even notice Malfoy and Ron rolling around under her seat or the scuffles and yelps coming from the whirl of fists that were Neville, Crab, and Goyle. Up in the air, Snape turned on his broomstick just in time to see something scarlet shoot past him, missing him by inches. The next second, Harry had pulled out of the dive, his arm raised in triumph, the snitch clasped in his hand. The stands erupted. It had to be a record. No one could ever remember the snitch being caught so quickly. Ron, Ron, where are you? The game's over. Harry's won. We've won. Gryffindor is in the lead, she shrieked. Hermione dancing up and down on her seat and hugging Pravardi Patel in the row in front. Harry jumped off his room a foot from the ground. He couldn't believe it. He'd done it. The game was over. He had barely lasted five minutes. As Gryffindor's game spilled out onto the field, he saw Snape land nearby, white-faced and tight-lipped. Then Harry felt a hand on his shoulder and looked up into Dumbledore's smiling face. Well done, said Dumbledore quietly so that only Harry could hear. Nice to see you haven't been brooding about the mare. Been keeping busy. Excellent. Snape spat bitterly on the ground. Harry left the locker room alone some time later to take his Nimbus 2000 back to the broom shed. He couldn't ever remember feeling happier. He'd really done something to be proud of now. No one could say he was just a famous name anymore. The evening air had never smelled so sweet. He walked over the damp grass, reliving the last hour in his head, which was happy blur. 
Gryffindor is running to lift him onto his shoulders, Ron and Hermione in the distance jumping up and down, Ron cheering through a heavily nosebleed. Harry had reached the shed. He leaned against the wooden door and looked up at Hogwarts, with its windows glowing in the red setting sun. Gryffindor in the lead. He'd done it. He'd shown Snape. And speaking of Snape, a hooded figure came swiftly down the front steps of the castle, clearly not wanting to be seen. It walked as fast as possible towards the Forbidden Forest. Harry's victory faded from his mind as he watched the, the recognized the figure's prowling walk. Snape, sneaking through the forest while everyone else was at dinner. What was going on? Harry jumped back on his Nimbus 2000 and took off. Gliding silently over the castle, he saw Snape enter the forest at a run. He followed. The trees were so thick he couldn't see where Snape had gone. He flew in circles lower and lower, brushing the top branches of trees until he heard voices. He glided toward them and landed noisily in a towering beech tree. He climbed carefully along one of the branches, holding tight to his broomstick, trying to see through the leaves. Below, in a shadowy clearing, stood Snape, but he wasn't alone. Quirrell was there, too. Harry couldn't make out the look on his face, but he was stuttering worse than ever. Harry strained to catch what they were saying. Don't know why you want to to meet here, of all places, Severus. Oh, I thought we'd keep this private, said Snape, his voice icy. Students aren't supposed to know with a sorcerer's stone, after all. Harry leaned forward. Quirrell was mumbling something. Snape interrupted him. Have you found out how to get past the beast of Hagrid's yet? But, Severus, I... You don't want me as your enemy, Quirrell, said Snape, taking a step toward him. I, I don't know what you... You know perfectly well what I mean. An owl hooted loudly, and Harry nearly fell out of the tree. He steadied himself in time to hear Snape say, You're a little bit of hocus-pocus. I'm waiting. But, ah, very well, Snape cut in. We'll have another little chat soon, when you've had time to think things over and decide whether your loyalties lie. He threw his cloak over his head and strode out of the clearing. It was almost dark now, but Harry could see Quirrell standing quite still as though he was petrified. Harry, where have you been? Hermione squeaked. We won! You won! We won! shouted Ron, thumping Harry on the back. And I gave Malfoy a black eye, and Neville tried to take on Crab and Gold single-handed. He's still out cold, but Madame Pomfrey says he'll be all right. Talk about showing Slytherin. Everyone's waiting for you in the common room. We're having a party. Fred and George stole some cakes and stuff from the kitchens. Never mind that now, said Harry breathlessly. Let's find an empty room. You'll wait till you hear this. He made sure Peeves wasn't inside before shutting the door behind them. Then he told them what he'd seen and heard. So we were right. It is the Sorcerer's Stone. And Snape's trying to force Quirrell to help him get it. He asked if he knew how to get past Fluffy, and he said something about Quirrell's hocus-pocus. I reckon there are other things guarding the stone apart from Fluffy. Loads of enchantments. Probably, and Quirrell would have done some anti-dark art spell that Snape needs to break through. So you mean the stone's only safe as long as Quirrell stands up to Snape, said Hermione in alarm. He'll be gone by next Tuesday, said Ron. 